Hey, welcome to the 112th episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the fantastic MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Chad Finn, the sports media columnist for the Boston Globe. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know I sometimes enjoy carving up a writer's story and getting to the process behind the product. And on July 16th, Chad wrote an article for the Globes magazine headlined, I Got Lucky Man, Dennis Eckersley on Surviving His Toughest Times, that profiled the Hall of Fame reliever turned Red Sox broadcaster. And man, it's ridiculously good. So we're going to take a deep dive into the process and see where it leads us. Right now, on Two Writers, Sling Yang. All right, Chad, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. It's it's midnight where you are, which makes you the uh, the latest guest ever on this podcast. So I appreciate that. I learned something about you that I did not know, which is this. The odds are very, very good that in the early 1990s, you and I were sitting courtside at a main Delaware basketball game because I was the sports editor <laughs> of the University of Delaware student newspaper. You were the sports editor of the University of Maine paper. I'm sure there must have been a Spencer Dunkley, Francois Brochard uh, battle that we witnessed. <laughs> There's very little doubt about that. If you uh, if you remember Ricky Deadweiler lighting up Humane well, once upon yeah. a time, that was probably one of those situations because that guy used to kill him. It's so funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> wait, so um, I'm kind of interested in something. You and I both went to, uh, I would say, unremarkable journalism programs. You went to Maine. I went to Delaware. It's not like there are a gazillion people talking about either program. Do you think there is more to be gained or lost in hindsight by not going to a Northwestern, a Syracuse, a Missouri? Like, what did you get from going to a smaller program or what did you not get? I think we probably had a pretty similar, uh, I don't know if the experience was the same, but looking back on it, it probably feels about the same. And in my case, I think I would have got lost in the shuffle. Um, if I'd gone to Syracuse, which I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, my grades weren't great, weren't great compared to people who wanted to get a new house. And I think I got waiting listed and I just said, you know, I'll go to Goody Maine for a year and then, uh, ended up loving it. So I, I stayed for five and a half, but, uh, it, it I, I went down my freshman year. I, I knew in high school I wanted to be in, in sports media some way, probably as a writer. I liked all my English classes. I, you know, I played sports, but I knew I wasn't going anywhere with it. And so, um, my freshman year, not exactly a go getter, but I went down to the, the, the student paper a couple weeks in, started writing, um, fell off from it a little bit, a couple for a year or two. But by my senior year, you know, I was a sports editor and kind of followed that path. That never would have happened for me at one of the big schools. I just, you know, some kid who was more talented than me and, um, you know, probably had more funding for college than me because that was a difficult thing for me as well for a time, um, would have just surpassed me. And I, I, I don't know what I would have ended up doing. I, maybe, you know, maybe I would have worked a small paper somewhere in upstate New York. Who knows? But uh, um, for me, it worked out ideally. And, you know, I didn't think that was going to be the case at the time, but it did. Right. It's interesting. I also wanted Syracuse was kind of the place I wanted to go. And uh 
I must be far superior to you because I actually did get into Syracuse, but I didn't get into the, <laughs> the journalism program. I think I applied as like a, you know, rock science major or something. And, um, I feel like if history is different, we're both at Syracuse battling for like the women's volleyball or the, uh, the men's intramural rugby beat. And, uh, you know, I just think I kind of agree. I, I just think there's something to be said for going to a small program where you can cover basketball, football, whatever immediately and just dive into it, you know, that people yeah. miss out. My really lucky thing was, um, the UMaine hockey program was, uh, it was like the UNLV of college hockey, if there was such a thing at the time, where they mm -hmm. were completely loaded uh, one year. They went 42-1, and one, won the national championship the next year. They were on probation and had a bunch of wins docked because they had, you know, 27-year-old ineligible players on the ice that season. But Paul Correa played there and, like, six yeah. or seven other guys who made two goalies who made the NHL. And they, and they get a lot of national notice. And uh, I think that helped me. Clips wise, where I'm sending stuff out and they've already heard of the guy I've written about, you know, there or something like that. I think that was really beneficial to getting a first job. But, uh, you know, you, I know what if I'd gone to Syracuse, I probably never would have met Derek Coleman or, you know, Ronnie Cycli or ever been able to cover a beat like that. It just, uh, right. would have been someone who, who fell behind other people who were better at it at that point in time. Right. So your first job out of college, correct, was you were the assistant sports editor of the Concord Monitor. Is that correct? Yeah, New Hampshire. Yeah, it was a great job. I loved it. Wait, why is a newspaper hiring a 22-year-old college kid or 23-year-old college kid to be their assistant sports editor? <laughs> well, I was 24 because I had a pretty good run up at UMaine. <laughs> Semester off, you know, my girlfriend was a little bit younger and she was still in school, so I hung out and worked out a small paper up there for a while. But um, the guy that hired above me drove his car into a guardrail one night and decided he didn't want to come back the next day because he was falling asleep on his way home from work. So. Um, they were in a little bit dire straits in terms of finding, uh, finding somebody for that gig in a, a short amount of time. And I, you know, I had some really nice special sections that I was a part of designing, but I, they certainly weren't entirely my brainchild. And they saw them and saw that, you know, I was relatively young and a very short stack of resumes in the pile qualified for the job. So the, the editor, uh, who was a, just a brilliant guy named Mike Pride, who went on to you know, he ran the Pulitzers and has been a uh, just a super successful and, and uh, you know, uh, really good good at recognizing young talent. A lot of people have gone on to big things that worked there. Um, he gave me a chance and uh, I was horrible at it. At the beginning, I cropped every photo into a square when I was laying out the newspaper. The <laughs> photographers all wanted to kill me, uh, but I figured it out, you know, and, and you got reps and you got uh, you got the opportunity to. Uh, make mistakes and be told about your mistakes, but not be fired for your mistakes. And so I was, I was really lucky to land there. I'll, I'll never, uh, you know, I'll never forget the opportunity that I got there. What was your biggest mistake? Uh, you remember the umpire, Ron Luciano? Uh, you know, yeah, the, of course. The, the wise ass, uh, always getting into it with Earl Weaver. Yeah, wrote a bunch of books. Yeah, yeah we had like this pithy, uh, you know, column down the left side of the paper where, um, you know, it was like little sports log news item of the day and they were punchy and you put like a goofy headline on them and uh he died and i put uh out at home for the tagline and then it ended up he killed himself at his house so oh you know yeah that's uh heard about that one the next day i don't know uh, i don't want to brag but when i was the editor of the student newspaper delaware there was a guy going around and uh publicly masturbating in places 
and he was really terrorizing women and women were freaking out. And Jeez. we ran the subhead. He comes, he comes by day. He comes by night. <laughs> that did not go over well. <laughs> At least it's clever. We had a kid before me, um, who, I ended up working with him, but, uh, he, he slipped in his name, like into a high school roundup just as a joke and it didn't get edited well. So it's like, uh, my name is great. You know, it was in the high school roundup, but just stuff like that happens at small places. And, um, you know, you got to be diligent, but, uh, sometimes, sometimes you can't. And then you, you, you end up having hell to pay the next day. Were you a cocky kid out of college or were you a humble kid who was like, I need to learn? Oh, geez. I, I, uh, humble wouldn't. I, I didn't, I didn't know if I could do it. You know, I really didn't, especially after, um, you know, doing it for a week and every one of my page layouts looked the same and every writer at the place <laughs> seemed brilliant and every headline was like this incredibly clever play on words. And, uh, I, I just didn't feel like I belonged, you know, I, I, I didn't. And, uh, that changed after a year or two. And, you know, I made really good friends with the guys I worked with, which was great. But, uh, yeah, I think, I hope everybody has that self-doubt because I, I sure as hell did. See, I was, um, I was irrationally cocky, did not listen to any advice, um, thought I knew more than anyone at the newspaper and ended up getting demoted to the cops beat as a result of that. <laughs> so I feel like either you're, either you're super cocky and you end up falling on your face like I did or you're humble and you sort of pick up from other people you know, one way or the other. Yeah. But you learned. Sure. sure. Yeah. 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 I think so. So you, um, you wrote this piece. I gotta say, I, um, last year I edited the best American sports writing. And, um, if I, if this story that you did, uh, you wrote it for the, the globe magazine, uh, very recently. Yeah. It was a profile of Dennis Eckersley. Freaking great. Great. I mean, great. One of the best stories I've read this year. I think would have been, I would have picked this thing for the book without, you know, having to read through the whole thing. It's so ridiculously good. If you sent me 50 bucks last year, I could have gotten you in, you know, but you didn't, uh, you didn't do that. Yeah, that's a low bribe. Um, the, uh, the headline is I got lucky, man. Dennis Eckersley on surviving his tough times. Your lead is 21 years have passed since Dennis Eckersley last threw a pitch in a major league baseball game. He's 64 now and his mustache is gray, but his hair, or as he calls it, his moss is still long and he looks much the same as he did when he arrived in Boston in 1978 as a brash gifted 23 year old hiding a heart shattered to pieces. At this moment, the green monster looks her over his right shoulder, just as it did during those pressure-packed years of pitching as a home and visiting player at Fenway Park during his 24-year Hall of Fame career. But now he's not on the pitching mound. He's high above it in the Nesson booth behind home plate. With three hours before game time, Eckersley, whose cool guy charisma, genuine enthusiasm, and candid authenticity have made him a popular and respected color analyst on Red Sox broadcast, is percolating nervous energy as prepares to record that night's introduction. And it's just really... I mean, I feel like I've read about Dennis Eckersley about 17 million times in my yeah. life, but never like this. Um, Why did you even decide to write it? Um, Something I want to do for a long time because uh, a couple factors to it. Um, he he has been a color analyst here off and on and a studio analyst pretty much since 2003. You know, he start, his career ended in 98, one last year with the Red Sox, and he searched a little bit for what he wanted to do. And he ended up settling, staying in Boston and kind of just sort of gradually, it wasn't, it wasn't by design, uh, ended up on Nesson's Red Sox broadcasts up here, the, the regional cable network carries the Red Sox. And he's really good at it because he had absolutely no filter. It was a wonder he didn't swear on the air every night. Um, but at the same time, Jerry Remy, former Red Sox second baseman, local guy, 
uh, beloved color analyst was uh, entrenched in the booth, did all 162 games, and uh, everybody loved him, um, had a great sense of humor about himself. But he, he started, you know, having health issues. And when he would, he's had six instances of lung cancer um, since 2008, I believe. And so when he would be away, Eckersley would fill in. And it did not take long to realize how good Eckersley was at it, too. Um, he was this, you know, like seemed the super cool 70s guy, you know, driving a Camaro, found a look in 1975 he liked and stuck with it. Uh, but the more you listen to him, the more you realize he loves baseball like a fan. He's not one of those guys who is just really great at baseball and, you know, just wanted to not have anything to do with it in the offseason or took his talent for granted. He was someone who really loved the game and watched it all the time when he wasn't at the ballpark and really cared about it. And that connection was made with the viewers really quickly. And then he's this quirky character with his own lingo, uh, you know, he, uh, 24 years in the major leagues, Hall of Famer. So he has this great credibility. But because of the Remy factor, he, he didn't seek out any attention. Um, it hadn't been done on him around here that uh, some sort of big feature, uh, just not only going over what his life, life is like now, what uh, his how his broadcasting career came to be, but all the stuff that he went into to get to this point, which is really compelling. He's been through a lot in his life, and the guy's an open book on the air. He's an open book when you talk to him in person. Um, so I wanted to do that story for a long time, and uh, I finally broached it this this spring uh, with his wife, and I texted him. He passed along to his wife, who handles his business interests, and she said, yeah, I would love to. And you know, I had a little relationship with him because I had done things with him before. I cover the media here. I think he trusts me, but um, I thought he would be an open book, but I didn't realize it would be to the level that he was. And um, basically, I just didn't want to screw up the story because he gave me so much that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, any writer would have a really hard time messing that up. So I was happy with the way it worked out that I didn't destroy it. When you go into a story like this, do you say, look, I'm going to need X amount of time? How do you figure out sort of what you're going to get from him? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to be, hang out with him on a couple different occasions. Uh, and I ended up doing that. It was for probably three, three and a half hours total. Uh, a couple of days at Fenway, I would go in and meet him early in the Nesson booth where he was preparing before the game. Um, you know, he gets there and just likes to be there and likes to be in the moment and, um, kind of get in that baseball mode as his wife, wife calls it. Go down, talk to, you know, Alex Cora, the manager with him, see how he interacts with the players or his, his peers. That's sort of, you know, behind the scenes color. Um, and I was going to ride up with him from his house, but, uh, he backed out of that, you know, just didn't feel comfortable with it. And I was cool with that because those after I'd already interviewed him once, I knew I was going to get good stuff. I knew we had a good rapport. Uh, so we just basically hung out together a couple of different times at the ballpark before games, during games. Um, I went and watched him interact a little bit with they have a legends booth here where basically you know it's like fred lane comes out and waves to the fans in the seventh inning and and hangs out in a uh in a in a box and you know hangs out with the high rollers for the game and and they get to hang out with the next player Eck does that a little bit when he's not doing the broadcast so i, I saw how he interacts in those scenarios but other than that they gave me the time that i wanted him and uh, him and mrs eckersley is his wife jennifer so um really no no complaints and no no speed bumps there other than uh, you know you didn't want me in the in the passenger seat i guess
Is that awkward actually being like, uh, can I drive up with you? Like, how does that conversation go? It's so weird. I, I'm so bad at asking about stuff like that. You know, I mean, you know how it is when you're going into a, a feature story like this. You've done a lot more of them than I have. And you just want that color. You want to be able to tell people what it's like, what they don't see. And Eckersley's such a familiar guy. Everybody knows what he looks like. They know what he's like on the broadcast. They remember him pitching for the Red Sox. Um, they probably have a pretty good idea that he's really candid and, you know, is going to tell you the truth. So you want something that hasn't been out there already, whether it's, it's, you know, what the, what his friggin' house looks like or that's, you know, anything like that. You know, what kind of car he drives? How, what kind of driver is he? Anything. And, uh, so yeah, I brought that up. I said maybe that would be a good way to go just to kind of see what his day is like as he gets ready for a game and, um, they were cool with it for a while, but then they, you know, they decided they, maybe we should just hang out at the ballpark or, um, they, they were made sure to assure me that I would get whatever I needed. And, uh, I did, yeah, uh, you know, whenever I needed to talk to them or whenever I needed, you know, photos or that sort of thing, uh, they were super accessible and, uh, really open to it. You know what I hate? I actually, I've never talked about this in the podcast. I hate that moment when I say like, how about if I drive up with you? Or how about I hang out here? Can I hang out in your hotel room? Can we go out to dinner? Yeah. And that like awkward, like, yeah, uh, I, no, why don't we just hang out at the at the ballpark? And then you have to pretend like it's no big deal. Then you have right. to be like, yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah. You, you can't go, annoying. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. I've had that happen so many times. Oh, no, it's good. But you yeah, got to cool. ask, you know, because you know, you're going to get good stuff okay. if it does. If, if, if it's the one guy in five who says, yeah, sure. You know, I'm leaving at three right along. Yeah. Have you had the ride along? Have you ridden along with athletes? One very brief one was um, I did the th same thing for the magazine a couple of years ago, and it was on so the short athletes in Boston who were really thriving at the time. Because it was Brad Marchand for Bruins, Julian Edelman, who went on to make that crazy catch against the Falcons in the Super Bowl that year. Um, it was supposed to be Dustin Pedroia, but he blew me off four times. So I, I said, hey, you know, Mookie Betts is kind of short. And he ended up having his first really great season that year. And uh, Isaiah Thomas was, the, I rode along with him to his basketball camp. It was like a, a two day camp he was doing. I can't remember what town it was in, but it was right after the season ended. Um, he said, I'll, I'll be able to give you some time that day, but once you meet me over at uh, the practice facility and uh, you can ride up with me and we'll knock out most of the interview there. So it wasn't that far. It was me, him, and a PR person, maybe 45 minutes, but uh, it wasn't even anything I actually used in the story, but it was. It was nice of him to give me that kind of access without, uh, you know, me having to, having to even ask. Yeah. Wait, I ha I can't let this one go. You said Dustin Pedroia blew you off four times. What does that look like? Uh, it's standard Dustin Pedroia. <laughs> um, it, it's showing up at the ballpark. You know, I, I was, I mean, I've never been a Red Sox B rider. I, I, I hop on the bandwagon in the playoffs like every other, you know, writer at the newspaper does. Um, you know, I'll go for, game against the Yankees a big game in July or whatever, you know, big series. I'll show up and, you know, write a column or a second sidebar, that sort of thing for the, for the paper, but I, I'm not there every day. Uh, so, you know, I don't think a lot of the guys really know who I am. In fact, a few years ago we do in our baseball preview section, we do pre, you know, you do the stupid predictions that are always wrong on how the season's going to go. And, you know, ALE, Stale Central, all that. And uh, it has our yeah. headshots with it. It was like six of us. And Pedroia cut it out of the paper, circled my head and wrote who and hung it up at his locker. So he had no idea who I was. <laughs> and uh, 
one of the one of the other writers told me that I don't think I was even around once that year. But uh, he he didn't know who I was, but uh, the PR guy broached the story to him, told him who was cooperating, and uh, he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do it." And I don't know why he every time I showed up, he would be in the trainer's room. He'd tell the PR guy, "Yeah, give me half hour," and then he you know he wouldn't be able to do it. And I mean, I recognize he's at work, but. Uh, or maybe something wasn't going the way he wanted or whatever. He felt like he needed extra video work. I, I don't know. I never got a reason. But, you know, after it happened uh, all those different times, uh, I realized, you know, time to probably should have moved on to plan B a little bit before that. But uh, it was funny. Uh, How is Mookie Betts? Mookie's, Mookie's great. He, you know, he's just a yeah. even keel kind of guy. He's, he, he should be a bigger star than he is, but and he has a lot of charisma, but. Um, he's not one of those guys that's going to be really outwardly celebrating or anything. And I think that probably hurts him in terms of, you know, we hear with a lot of the baseball players, Mike Trout or whoever, it probably hurts him in terms of national recognition. But uh, he's one of those, he was at least at that point, one of those guys who you say, hey, can you do this? And he'll say, sure, how, you know, you need 10 minutes. Is that okay? Whatever. It was more than enough, 10, 15 minutes. So he was good and he bailed me out on that. And it, it was funny because I told, uh, after I interviewed Edelman, I told him, yeah, I, I told him Pedroia bailed out. And he said, yeah, I actually thought about doing that, too, but I didn't. So I said, well, thank wow. you. I appreciate Funny. that. Wow. Do you, you know, it's interesting. Before I get back to Eckersley here, because we're on this. I mean, you you are you are the sports media columnist for the Boston Globe. Um, the idea of a guy like Pedroia blowing you off four times or Edelman being like, yeah, I thought about blowing you off. <laughs> right. Should we as reporters... You know, there's like this long history of us just taking it like, yeah. oh, OK. All right. Who else can we get? You know, like, should we be taking this shit? Like, is that is that OK? Is it just the nature of it? And they're more powerful than we are when they're in their positions and we just have to eat the dog shit sometimes. Yeah, they're more powerful than ever with that. I, I, I think the only thing we can really do is fight with the PR people and say, you know, you know, this is <laughs> bullshit. But yeah, if you take the case publicly to take it on Twitter you know, or complain about it. And in the actual story you're writing, nobody's going to care and nobody's going to sympathize with you, especially the way media as a whole and sports media is viewed these days. They look at us anyway, as you get to go to the game, you're probably sitting there eating pizza. And uh, I would kill to be able to go to the ballpark for free and have the seats that you have. And they, you know, they have no idea about what deadline is or, um, you know, what a grind it can have all the travel on your personal life or, you know, any of that stuff. They, they're just looking at it like you're at the game. You get to talk to these guys. I wish I could do that. I don't sympathize with anything that you go through that might be negative. And it's always going to come down on the player's side. So it's a, it's a fight we shouldn't have publicly anyway. The win I like is a, I had, um, I did a Q&A several months ago now with Sweeney Murdy. I don't know if you know Sweeney. He works oh, yeah. for WFAN in New York. He told me he had a conflict with one Yankee. He wouldn't name the Yankee. But he said the guy was a real jerk. And Sweeney, I don't know if he said it to him, he thought to himself, you know what, 10 years from now, I'm still going to be here and you're not. And Oof. 10 years have passed and he's still there and the player's gone. And that is the one thing, like, we definitely have more staying power. That's our one thing. We don't make more money. We're not more famous. We don't get more glory. But generally, you know, David Price, Dennis Eckersley. Dennis Eckersley is going to be calling games for the Red Sox well beyond David Price's career in Boston. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's true. And, you know, I, I think sometimes... In, internally, the media can, you know, get kind of condescending about it, too. But in, in sort of a way, you understand where it's like, you know, you're a moron who, if you didn't have this God-given gift, wouldn't be, uh, you know. The, the joke here when Roger Clemens was pitching for the Red Sox is if 
he didn't have that golden right arm, he'd be sitting on the back of a pickup truck with a straw sticking out of his mouth. You know, the just, you know, the, some of these guys are really blessed and don't appreciate it. And, uh, if, if you, you know, look at it from a intelligent human's point of view, you, you recognize what they have is, is pretty fleeting. And I think you, you appreciate the guys who recognize that and sort of are able to keep everything in context and be actual human beings. And, you know, those guys are rare and rare. It's one of the things I really like about Eckersley is he's, he's as accomplished about as a baseball player can be. And, and, and yet, uh, you know, he, he's also about as down to earth as, um, as a person can be, which is just, it's a weird juxtaposition because it doesn't happen very much. You wrote something in the story that I really liked. You said, uh, you had a quote from him. He goes, you can't get too relaxed because it gets, it gets away from you. He says, you always have to be on. There's no other way for, uh, to, for me to be. I'm into it. And then you have, uh, yourself, you say, that's Eck in a nutshell. He comes across as carefree, but he could not possibly care more about so much baseball, his job, his wife, his friends, his family, more than 30 years of sober life. So, you know, that's Eck in a nutshell. He comes across as carefree, but he could not possibly care more about so much. I'm always fascinated when writers serve as narrators in stories. Like you are narrating this story. You are kind of explaining to the reader who Eckersley is. How much do you feel you are allowed to do that in a profile? Because I feel like when you're a younger writer, you don't do that. It's quote, paragraph, quote, paragraph. It's only facts. It's hardcore. It's straight. And then as we grow as writers, we feel more comfortable saying like, he could not possibly care more about this. You know, blah, blah, blah. This is who he is. He's this kind of guy. That's who he is. Blah, blah, blah. That sort of stuff. Like, are you, I don't know. Are we allowed to do that as much as we want? Is that fair game in a profile? Are you doing something different than maybe you did 30 or 20 years ago? I think you're supposed to, you know, I, I struggle with it because I'll have this really great, great quote from somebody. And I look at it and say, I'm just going to plug the quote in. But then I think I'm the writer and, you know, there's this little stretch of the quote that's probably redundant or is a line that, you know, you're trying to hit a word count. Maybe we don't need this particular line. Maybe I could write it tighter or something like that or write it in a more colorful way. But um, I've struggled with that. So I, 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 I don't know if it's a confidence thing or, um, just let them talk in their own voice or, or what it is, but I, I, I'll read a profile and, you know, if it's something somebody like you wrote or in Sports Illustrated or, um, just a real, a really strong profile and, you know, Kevin Van Valkenburg, somebody like that. And it's in their voice and they still have these great quotes, but you feel like they took a good quote and wrote it in this beautiful, you know, text and, and style. And I struggle with that. I, I still tend to lean on the quote. And I think putting that together, the accuracy thing, he gave me so much that was quotable that I felt like I was just bridging his quotes in a lot of places where it just get in with a nice segue somewhere or, um, you know, find a way to connect this section to that section. But, um, you know, don't get in the way because he said so many interesting things that uh, you you don't want to overwrite yourself and leave out have to leave out stuff that you you want to get in that he talked about so well, no it's a it's a balancing act and I, I definitely struggle with that i think when i was at sports illustrated maybe i first started hearing more and more about this idea that you can put their what you can state what they're trying to say more eloquently than they can yeah so yeah. when i yeah like when i would read a i don't know who an alex wolf or uh richard hoffer these guys i read growing up you realize like they've used very few quotations compared to a lot of newspaper writers and the general idea was why should I use a quote when I could say it for them right. with more eloquence? 
But then you have someone like Eckersley, who actually is a very eloquently stated man. So it makes it very complicated, I guess. Yeah. And he says things in a, a way that's unique to him. You know, he, he has his own way of talking, his own lingo. He swears every other word. Um, I fought to get my expletives in that story as the actual swear word, because I, I think actually, like the last word in the piece, it says expletive. I don't want people to think I'm expletive. People are going to think that's a-hole. He right. said dick, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what the word was. And I, I wanted to be able right. to leave that in there. And, uh, it, you know, I, I guess you got to have some standards for, you know, the crowd that's going to be reading the, the Globe magazine. It's probably a little bit different than somebody who's going to be reading this, would read this feature online at Bleacher Report or, or wherever. So, you know, you got to balance those things, I guess, a little bit too. But uh, yeah, I, I think with the, with a guy like Eckersley, where he's such a distinctive character, you, you probably use his voice a little bit more than you use your own if you can. Actually, it is funny. Your last quote in this whole story is, ultimately, it's just about being understood, he says. Don't we all want that? At least like, you want to have people meet you and say, hey, that guy's not a blank. And you're right. Asshole would be my, yeah. Now, it could be douchebag. It could be asshole. It could be motherfucker. It could be whatever. No, so you're saying it was dick. dick. And, and <laughs> do you think they should have left dick in there? Um, I understand why they didn't. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you in your newspaper days, I mean, you wrote stuff other than sports. Writing for A1 was different than writing for the front page of the sports section. Like, Christ, sometimes it feels like they're going to ask you to explain what a quarterback is on a football story. You know, it yeah. just they 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 assume their audience is less knowledgeable and less interested in this stuff, sports stuff, than than they actually are. I mean, people who look at the magazine on Sunday and see Eckersley's face are going to say, "Oh, it's Eck." You know, I, I don't care where they live if there's some rich person in Brookline or. Uh, you know, some person who's not so rich living in some other part of Boston. They're going to know him. He's known. He's been here for 41 years. Uh, but, you know, they they sort of assume you, you kind of have to explain a little bit for this part of the audience that isn't going to know who he is. And so, you know, it gets gets simplified a little bit in that regard. And I think in the same sense, they they, they look at his cursing and say, well, not everybody knows that he talks that way. So, you know, maybe we should... Uh, right you know, make it a little more subtle or clean or whatever. When I was a writer, a young writer at the Nashville, Tennessean, I did a story and a woman, a, a mother of a high school player was screaming at the ref and she was screaming, Hey, you're an asshead. You're an asshead. And my, <laughs> I ran the quote and my paper made it a dot dot head. And people actually wrote letters to, to the paper complaining about my story saying that she was just complaining. Hey, you're a head, you're a head. What's the big deal about it? And it freaking oh, drove man. me crazy because he said asshead, which is a great word. You're right. I've never heard it before. Yeah, I think if there's one thing we can say for the Donald Trump presidency and shithole countries, it's open this up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That was the tipping point. I yeah. think for the globe, it was. I think that's the first time we've used that in print. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and we're talking jerseys. All right, Casey, favorite Jersey? I guess New Jersey, but it smells like sewer and there are too many rest stops. How about Jersey Mike's? The sandwich shop? Yeah. Also smells like sewer. Hmm, how about Joey Jersey, the boy at school you have a crush on? Dad, you just made that up. There's no Joey Jersey. Why don't we just talk about the jerseys made by 503 Sports? They encompass a ton of different sports leagues, from the WFL to the USFL to the Canadian League. They're handcrafted and created with love. Seriously, they're far better jerseys than New Jersey. 
And you can visit 503-sports.com to check him out. I bet you'd love to see Joey Jersey in a new jersey wearing a jersey and jersey mics. Dad? Yes? You're not even a little bit funny. I thought the most fascinating part of this story, and it's a really fascinating story, is um, Rick, Man- <laughs> Rick Manning. And um, yeah. Rick Manning was, was Eckersley's teammate and best friend with the Cleveland Indians back in the day. You wrote, um, he was traded to Boston. And then you said that same day, his wife, Denise, whom he'd married when they were both 18 and with whom he had an infant daughter, Mandy, told him she wanted a divorce. A few months later, she told him she wanted to marry his best friend, Indian center fielder, Rick Manning. Yeah. And then this is a great quote. I was like, how can you trade me? Eckersley said they were probably thinking, well, he throws sidearm and his wife is sleeping with Rick Manning. <laughs> he didn't uh, say didn't sleeping with either. I barely knew it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's in parentheses. His wife is fucking Rick Manning. Yeah. Um, and you, you later on, you sort of give this scene of him talking to Rick Manning, like kind of showing that this guy is a decent guy and he's talking to Rick Manning, getting notes from Rick Manning about the Indians. Is it, I don't know, is it awkward asking Dennis Eckersley about the former teammate who quote fucked his wife and led to his divorce? And also second part of that, do you consider calling Rick Manning for this story? Yeah, I did actually. I sent a message to Cleveland, uh, second part first to the Cleveland PR guy. And he said, uh, Rick, Rick has talked about this enough, basically. So I understood. Um, I did the same thing with, uh, with David Price, which has kind of become a shit storm up here. Him, him reacting to what, you know, three sentences accurately said about him in a 3,700 word story. Um, you know, said PR, does he want to talk about this? No, I don't think he does. And so, you know, move, you move on, but you, you do ask. Um, the, the thing with Manning and it's a very act thing is he, I was trying to figure out how to broach it because I had seen him talking to Manning before I was working on this story. I, I was covering a game because I filled in on the beat a little bit this year after our Nick Cafardo passed away, our, our longtime Red Sox writer. So a bunch of us filled in and I was happened to be covering a game one night against Cleveland and went out to, you know, go get a, get something in the lunchroom or whatever it was and X standing out there leaning against the wall and he's talking to this guy, you know, every ex ball player age 50 looks about the yep. same. The hair is colored, still got a tan, you know, they pretty good shape, but a little, a lot of golf. Yeah. A lot of golf, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I know that's somebody. And I got around the corner. I was like, Holy shit, that's Manning. He's the, the Indians play, uh, color analyst looked it up in the media guide and it was. And, uh, so I, you know, you stumble into things like that and know you got to use them. And uh, so I tucked it away. And then when I started working on the story, I was trying to figure out how to broach it. And he brought it up. Eckersley brought it up. He brings Amazing. all this stuff up himself. I know. I feel guilty because I, I didn't have to do the the hard part in, in a couple of instances of, of bringing up things. That were, you know, it was alcoholism he brought up. The, you know, some of it I, I did. But um, it, m- most of it was him just in conversation saying, yeah, this happened. And I, I, I think how I brought it up to him was you got Trey of the Red Sox. You're, you're 23 years old, 1978. There's a week left in spring training. You get traded to the Red Sox. And he, and I didn't say why. I didn't say, how does that happen? You know, is that just the Indians being an idiot? Um, and he just said, yeah. And that quote, you know, the quote in the story about what happened with his wife. And he's talked about it before. I mean, um, what happened was that the three of them were living together and uh, they'd been together. And since I know not a good, great idea in retrospect, uh, but they no. had been close since they were in a ball in like California or whatever the a ball was in, in the Cleveland system. Manning was a first round pick. Three of them were tight. Manning got hurt. 
uh, he had a back injury. Um, and he stayed home when Eck was on the road. And so he's home with, with Eck's wife and, and, uh, you know, things happen as Eck said himself, he's not a saint either. And, uh, so yeah. that's kind of how it came about. But the, you know, the truly remarkable thing about that is that Eckersley completely forgives him, talks to him and says, we, 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 ra he raised my daughter. He's the father to my daughter. So, you know, I, a lot of people don't have the capacity for forgiveness that, that, that Eckersley does and to be able to, you know, accept that this happened, let alone actually talk to the guy like a you know, normal human being. I also thought Eckersley, I don't have the quote in front of me, but sort of like you just said, kind of admitted he was fucking around on the road. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, so, uh, especially yeah. um, after he got traded here, too, you know, he's just a, he, he was a mess drinking all the time, not coming to the ballpark when he was supposed to. And and you know, I, I, I think he was implying that uh, by saying he wasn't innocent, that that's exactly what was happening. So the story's rolling along, rolling along. Great story, great story. And I came to one paragraph that I'm really fascinated by. Um, you wrote, Eckersley, incurably candid as he is, does not pretend his life is perfect. He brings up the tragedies and dark times willingly, talking of ghosts old and new that haunt him. His sister, Cindy Calgill, died last August at age 58. She just drank herself to death, he says. I still can't believe it. His older brother, Wally, has been in and out of prison and was sentenced to 48 years in 1989 for the kidnapping, aggravated robbery, and attempted murder of a 58-year-old woman. In May, yeah. a New Hampshire newspaper revealed that the daughter Eckersley and Nancy adopted, who has battled <laughs> mental illness and is now 22, is homeless in the state. It's one subject you prefer not to talk about on the record, but it's clear the circumstances leave him making. This is going to sound like a criticism. It is not, I swear. My editors at Sports Illustrated and probably at the Tennessean would have said, you got to flesh that out and, get, and turn that paragraph into a thousand words because there's so much there. Right. Uh, is, that a fair, is that a fair critique on that one? It's what got cut. You know, we, I filed it 2,000 words more than I was supposed to. <laughs> it was supposed to be 2,500. Awesome. It ended, uh, no, 3,000 more. It, it ended up, it, it, they said, we, they said, we want 2,500. Um, I thought, and they said, but we can take more. And when they say we can take more, that's 3,000 in my mind. Um, I wrote 5,500. It included a lot of that stuff <laughs> and it included, uh, a lot on his relationship with his current wife, his third wife, who's she's a really remarkable person. And she's, you know, it's a cliche, but she's the rock in his life. She's the one she's she handles Ack Inc., but she clearly loves the guy very much. And it's right. just the perfect person for him at this point in his life. And um, I had, I think, 800 words on her and and, you know, just sort of what their life is like. And th that's the stuff we cut. Um, and I, 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 you know, I agree, I would agree with that, but I also, the stuff that I, I really wanted to have in was, um, sort of, you know, what is, was broadcasting life is like, because that's what resonates with the people. Most of the people are going to be reading that story around here is Eck the broadcaster and also, um, sort of, you know, how he is at this point in his life with all that he's gone through. And, and also there's so many bases to touch just over his 24 year career. I, I jump from like him showing up late at uh, batting practice because he was drinking all the time with the Red Sox in 78 to his arm being sore in 83 to he's closing now for the A's in 89. You know, you could do 2000 words on his entire experience with the Cubs uh, from 84 to until they gave, gave him away to the A's in 89 as a salary dump. And um, you know, that, that was two, two sentences in my story. I mean, the guy's a book. 
what does it feel like to have that many words cut from a story and how 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 did how was it processed like how did that go about uh i was really worried about it and it ended up being really uh reassuring um they i i felt like they 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 did the right thing my my editor on it um basically took what i sent him i said yeah i think i wrote a little over here didn't give him a number um and he said he sent me back a message like a day later saying i i think we probably need to get this to 3500 but uh you know you have a lot of good stuff and we're going to try to get it in i i'm curious if they had me booked for less space because they you know maybe some of the upper editors there really didn't have an awareness of who Eckersley is and um once they realized he's really this compelling character and oh he's also a baseball hall of famer and oh he's also resonates with Red Sox fans right now in this moment, then, uh, okay, we can give them more than 2,500 on this. Um, but I, I felt like maybe they needed to see what I had before they were going to give me that space. And, um, they gave me a little more and I felt like they, they cut the right stuff. When I got back the first edit, I was completely relieved because I thought we were going to have to fight on stuff that I wanted to keep like the, the Rick Manning thing. I wasn't sure if it was going to make it or not. You're a better person than I am. <laughs> I would have lost 10 pounds. My hair, whatever I have left, wouldn't would have been falling out. I do not handle those things well. You seem oh, like a good guy. Stressed. I, uh, I was really stressed out, yeah. but uh, I I don't know. I was braced for the, the worst. And I, it's the usual editor I have on this. So I know he, they, he does a great job and fights for me. But I also knew that I kind of fucked them over by sending them twice to, you know, two and a quarter times what it was supposed to be. So if I was going to get punished on it and take a hit on it that I, I was probably going to deserve it to some degree, but I didn't. Yeah. I had, um, I had the, uh, I had the Chris Jones. I don't know if you know, Chris Jones, the es former Esquire writer on a couple oh, yeah. weeks ago. And, um, I was like, how do you take editing? And I figured he would be like, oh, I hate it. He's like, they're paying me to write. Like they're paying me. It's going in something that they control. So at the end of the day, what right do I really, really have to go crazy over something? Which I've never thought of because I've gone crazy a million yeah. times over edits. But at the end of the day, you do not own the Boston Globe. So I guess what are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'll never look at it that way, though. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if, if you will, but yeah, there's been other stories I've written where yeah, no. um, maybe the subject wasn't that familiar. And uh, so I, I felt like maybe something was lost in the editing or, or lost in trying to appease, uh, trying to make yeah. it fit for a certain audience that might not have that much awareness of the person. and. You know, it gets simplified and you, you kind of lose, you know, you kind of lose the, the gist of it or the, the, the vibe that you're trying to go for there and capturing the person's personality. That's happened to me before, too, where it's just been, it's been right. you know, smoothed out to the point where it's not, uh, it's not the story you wanted to tell. I want to ask you one more thing about the story. Obviously, it's kind of the, the big post-story headline, which is uh, David Price. I don't get, guy went to Vanderbilt. He can't be this dumb. You know, like he seems like a smart guy, you know, but Jesus Christ, you, um, you know, Price went off on Eckersley a couple of years ago over something innocuous that yeah. Eckersley said, and you asked Eckersley about it and he said it still bothers him. And his quote in your story was, uh, I didn't know how to deal with that. I don't plan on saying a word to him. I don't plan on seeing him. Never. Um, I don't really give a shit one way <laughs> right. or another. I don't think he really cares one way or another. And to me, like, okay, like that's a pretty freaking lit. That's a flat. I mean, you needed the quote. What I'm saying is, there's nothing offensive about that. You didn't say anything about even about price that was particularly bad. There, it's just basically saying I'm moving on. I don't give a shit. And uh, you know, price sort of 
reacted negatively to it. And what I found interesting is you wrote a piece, uh, July 18th. David Price still has no clue what Dennis yep. Eckersley is all about. Uh, it was a column in the Globe sort of going off on Price and that he's kind of a moron. <laughs> and I wonder, I've, cause I've never actually had an experience like that. And I'm not saying you did anything wrong here, but where you wrote a profile, someone speaks out against something in the profile, and then you write a column about the guy speaking yeah. out about the profile. I don't know. Were you torn on doing that? Was there any sort of, did you have to walk any lines or was it just uh, automatic? It, it was automatic to the point that, I mean, it's basically a series. And it, it, I tweeted all that shit earlier in the day, you know, sticking up for, for the story. But what right. happened was the, um, the story went up Tuesday and it went online, uh, you know, 11 o'clock in the afternoon, got enormous traffic, just, you know, popular, popular guy, you know, it, I expected it would do good traffic and it did. Never heard a word about the price stuff. I heard about the Manning stuff. I heard about people, um, you know, really thinking his wife seemed like a cool person. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Not a email, not a stupid Twitter comment about the price thing. Nothing. It got aggregated on Wednesday morning by the sports radio station up here. They read 3,700 words on that story, took 250 about David Price and turned it into a blog post. And David Price saw the post and retweeted it with a bunch of emojis. It's the fucking media world we live in right now. And retweeted a bunch of emojis, you know, yeah. said whatever, you know, X still hung up on it, tweeted something about it's going to be lit tonight, even though Alex Cora had a talk with him in the morning about the tweets. And then he goes to talk, calls the media over before the game and you know, says his piece, but also says he factually wrong about things. Like he said, um, I know, uh, I saw the, uh, MLB network doc on Eckersley, he says, which is an hour long thing. You All know, right. it was, it was X sitting on a stage talking about it. It was a lot of stuff that, that was in my story. And, uh, he said, I saw that not one ex teammate vouch for him. And I mean, I have a screener of the documentary. I have the press release of the documentary. I pop it open and it's Fred Lynn, Ron Darling, Mark McGuire, Tony La Russa, his manager, who he still talks to every day because he works at the Red Sox. Now it's, uh, you know, six or seven teammates, uh, Jerry Remy, and they all rave about him. And I, I, I <laughs> was tweeting out, I talked to people that I couldn't fit them into the story because it was redundant with other nice things people had to say. Jim Rice, Rick Honeycutt, uh, you know, uh, there was another, oh, Tim Wakefield who works with them at Nesson, just, you know, all these people love the guy and it's genuine. And here's David Price saying he has no friends. And, you know, beyond whether you think he's actually projecting after you watch him sit by himself for an hour in the clubhouse every night, it's, it, it's just, it was a stupid, petty thing to say. And it was clear he, he saw nothing but the tweet from the radio station about those words in my story. And it was really frustrating from that standpoint because this was no issue until it got aggregated and thrown on Twitter. And I, I understand aggregation. We do it at the globe and at boston.com, but for that to be, you know, what David Price clings to for his, to, to get this whole stupid thing going again, it's just so aggravating. And it, 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 it's a real synopsis of the, the media culture we have right now. So, um, two week vacation, David Price or Josh Beckett. Yeah. That's another you? thing. Um, the beat writers. <laughs> 
uh, I, I've been monitoring them because I know what they say, you know, uh, about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And there have been a lot of peeps about how the, uh, some of them really feel about David Price. But I've had more than one person compare David Price to Josh Beckett in the sense that he's the most dislikable guy, uh, dislike guy that they've had here since Josh Beckett was here. And Josh Beckett was the worst. I mean, he was just went out of his way to be a jerk to everybody. Yeah. Did you deal with him? Did you write something on him? I always got along very well with him, actually. And um, I think I've told this story in the podcast maybe once before. I'm not sure. But um, I had a great moment where he wasn't talking to Sports Illustrated because uh, this was when he was still with the Marlins and they won the World Series. And he Sports Illustrated was hosting their uh, Super Bowl party in Miami. And he showed up with like an entourage of like 10 guys. <laughs> And they wouldn't let him in with all his guys. And he stopped talking to Sports Illustrated. So SI sent me down to spring training because I had something of a relationship with him. And he said he would talk to me. And Rick Riley was in the Marlins clubhouse. And Rick Riley said, hey, can you introduce me to Beckett? And I said, sure. And I introduced uh, Riley to Beckett. And I said, um, I said, Rick, you didn't, did you go to the SI Super Bowl party? And Beckett's standing right there. And Riley goes, oh, did I? It was the <laughs> best party I've ever been to in my life. Holy shit. Oh, man. <laughs> It was one of the funniest things ever. Beckett is just standing there steaming. He always really good. So, uh, but I never had a problem with him, but that doesn't mean he's a good guy. I heard enough. For the most part, he treated everybody miserably. Well, listen, this was a, uh, it's a great story. I mean, it's a freaking great story. If, if, you, if you've been waiting to get in Best American, I feel oh, like this thanks, is your man. year. Glad to finally get to talk to you. I want to thank today's guest, Chad Finn, for joining me at Shoe Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Chad on Twitter at Globe Chad Finn and read his work in the Boston Globe. His podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, Kings of the Throwback Sports Merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Shoe Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Anchor, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.